You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sporting coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. As the podcast has grown, the great coaches have shared so much insight and wisdom that we decided to create episodes dedicated entirely to the ideas that have resonated with us the most. Today's episode is on the topic of mental skills, and we're joined for the discussion by Aaron Walsh. Aaron is a mental skills coach presently working with Chiefs Rugby and Scotland Rugby. He has also worked with Hockey New Zealand and New Zealand Football to steer their national women's team's Olympic preparations. He also coaches individual athletes from all over the world, most notably people from the San Francisco Giants, the Arizona Diamondbacks and the New York Mets. He also coaches corporate leadership teams on creating and maintaining a high-performance working culture. This is a great conversation with Aaron, and I hope you enjoy it. And just a quick note, it was actually recorded in December 2020, and for a long time, the interview file was corrupted. But thanks to modern technology, I was able to salvage it and bring this interview to you today. And just before we go to the interview, if you are looking to lift your own leadership skills, then consider Elevated Leadership. We are a small team of friends and colleagues who after long corporate careers now do executive coaching. We work with business execs, sports coaches, and we also do pro bono work too for emerging leaders. If you'd like to know more, all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes. And now onto our interview with Aaron Walsh. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. 
Aaron Walsh. Good morning, or rather, good afternoon to you, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Yes, mate. Great to have you. It's actually evening, 9pm here in New Zealand, so just past the longest day of the year. Let's just start with something really bland. What are you up to today? Or rather, what were you up to yesterday? Where in the world are you? Today I'm recovering in Tauranga, which is a little city two hours southeast of Auckland, just down on the coast. So like a little coastal town. The equivalent, like if you're in the US, like San Diego, it's like a beautiful little beach town. And it was a little over 100,000. So today I've taken two naps and stretched because yesterday I played 100 holes of golf. So walking, so we me and a mate of mine started at 5.30 in the morning and we got finished at 6.30 at night. And we played five and a half rounds, so that's five rounds recorded. So we put our scores in for five rounds and then 10 extra holes to make it 100. And we covered about 53 kilometres on our feet. So, yeah, today was a bit of a recovery day. The fact that you've got any energy left to talk to us today is pretty impressive. So thank you very much for nah, you're getting good, out of your Enjoyed bed. Enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> nah, I loved it. It's also good to hear a an accent from the same part of the world where yeah, I'm from, yeah. given that I'm stuck here in Prague and can't get home yeah. for Christmas. Yeah. So that said, I'm really keen to talk to you. This, yeah. You're the first mental skills coach, actually, mm. we've managed to talk to. And it's a growing industry, and I can see why, particularly with what's happening here in COVID. But I wanted to actually start with a Maori proverb that I used in one of your articles, and I, I thought yeah. it was so so relevant given the situation we're in now. I'll just read it to you if that's okay. Mm-hmm. The proverb translates into the sweet potato never speaks of its own sweetness. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to structure these questions away from you and onto the teams you've had experience mm-hmm. with because I was worried that you might not <laughs> want to talk about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But could I ask by saying you've worked with some great coaches some very, or at least some very, very good ones. So can I start by asking you, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? I think it's becoming more and more common. Now, if I think of, there's three things to me when I think of great coaches or great leaders, they connect. So it would be, the, I, have, I, I just call them the three C's. So I think connection's massive. So they have an ability to see the person in front of them, have a database of experience and knowledge to adjust what they think in that moment is going to be critical for that person in front of them to get better. And so you'll hear about legendary coaches who are very, very kind and compassionate and quite empathetic. And with one player, then the other player's sort of thing was always quite tough on me. And he was quite almost a little bit combative at times. I think it's just the ability to understand what's in front of you, see what they need, have the database of tools and experiences to make those adjustments and then meet them where they're at. So that would be the first thing. And connection, I think, extending beyond that goes beyond just simply connecting with you as a performer, but I connect with you as a person. So I think those that really, really get the buy-in from the players, I think of someone like Craig Bellamy in Melbourne, he's he's infamous being quite, seems to be quite a hard-nosed sort of approach sort of coach, but there's hundreds of stories of him turning up hospital rooms with flowers for wives that have had babies and driving overnight to go to weddings and funerals. And just like, I think there's just no doubt that there is a massive understanding that he cares about you as a person, not just as a performer. And it's a really difficult balance to get because your right of entry into high-performance sport is still performance. So you don't belong because you're a good man. You don't belong because 
you have an ability to get on well with everyone certainly helps. In the end, you belong because you put up performances week after week that earn you that right. And so when I think of those coaches, they have this unique ability. Probably the best way to describe it is that they have really good skills to create social belonging and equally different set of skills to create a performance edge. And so that would be the connection. So this whole thing of performance and belonging, and it's a very, very important subject right now to sort of go on with. So that would be the first thing. The second one would be consistency. You're going to get every day. I think that's more emotional than it is necessarily technical. Like you walk into the room and you know what you're getting. It's not a mystery. It's not moodiness. It's not one day down the other. You show up on a Monday morning, you might have won by 40 points, lost by 40 points. Yes, there's a sense in the environment around how that feels, but the good coaches you're getting, that they're going to have a good way of processing it. The outcome and the results have a good way of interpreting that into the environment that they're about to lead for that week and their behaviours are just just radically consistent. And probably the final C would be to me would be competency. So they know how to do their job really, really well. So they have big trust with the players in front of them because it's not just that they're really kind and they're nice people and you're going to get every day and they have an ability to understand you as a person. They're actually really good at their job and they understand the game deeply. They understand the game well and they understand you know, putting on the, the strict performer's hat now. They know what it's going to take for you as an individual, whether you're a member of the staff or as a player, to be at your best and create a pathway for that to occur. So might be a bit of a long answer, but there's probably the three things that stick out if I, off the top of my head. So Aaron, connection, consistency yep. and competency. How do these great coaches then take these skills that they have and transform that into the fourth C, the culture of the team? I think that is the culture, to be honest. Like I think those three things at the end of the day become the foundation of the culture. So culture has become a a really, really big word, a word that I think a lot of people – I think it's a word that we all kind of – understand its value, but don't necessarily understand what it means. So there's a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, we've got to get the culture right. And then when you actually drill down into that quite deeply, what do you mean by that? And that's where the myriad of answers emerge. But I think that's right because I think there's myriads of needs depending on the context that you find yourself in. We're both parents, right? So the culture of our family is going to have a different set of guidelines to the culture of when I'm working in super rugby or working in cricket. It's a different culture. The outcome's quite different. There's different things that we're trying to accomplish. So therefore, the behaviours, the standards will be a little bit different from time to time. So it's an interesting one. I've been part of, as you can imagine, hundreds of these conversations. And I suppose I'm probably a bit cultural over it a bit. Like, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Like, where does it fit? What's its importance? How do we position it? We know culture isn't everything. You've got to be able to have the skill set and the ability to perform as well. So that's why I use an example like a, a provincial team in New Zealand will never win the Rugby World Cup unless they, even if they have the greatest culture in the world because they don't have the talent or the skill. Culture, to me, or I like to be honest, I just use the term environment because I think it's a better way of describing it because the culture is really the things that happen every day in the environment. So what do you want your environment to be like? And is it created or curated to get the best out of the people that are there every day? So let's talk then about skills and the technical competence that goes into that environment. You've talked a lot about the link between preparation and execution. So what I'd like to ask you is where do teams 
that are world-class preparers but fail to translate that into matching performance need to focus first. So my job and mental skills, I basically describe what do you do? Pretty simple. So my goal is to shrink the gap between someone's capability and what they deliver under pressure. And so I think that's what you're asking is why is there often a gap between capability or we could use another word potential and then delivery or performance. You could intermingle those words. They're quite the same. I guess the question is, where does my work fit? Okay, so I think it's really important that you can't outthink a bad body and you can't outthink bad technique. You can maximise that with having good mind, maximise your physical capability and you maximise your technical skills, but you can't create new advances in that. You've got to train that. And so there's no... There's no silver bullets, there's no quick fixes, there's no, if you we get the mental guy and then all of a sudden we awesome. No, no, you can't outthink that. But when you've worked really, really hard at those things and you've got it up to a level that's competable or even more than competable, then I think a lot of the work I do is then going, okay, well, what we're noticing is that you have high capability here and you have low delivery. There's a big gap. Okay, so why does that gap exist? And there is not one answer. <laughs> I wish I wish I could say, well, the gap exists. The common denominator is pressure. So that's the common, that's the common reason. But where that pressure comes from, why people experience and feel it different ways, that's as vast as the ocean, mate, because we're all quite different in the way that we, I suppose, process pressure, understand where it fits within our life and understand what sort of relationship we have with it. And so the preparation once again, can be world-class, 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 world-class. I think it gives you a much more better chance of performing than if you didn't go uh, prepare that way, but it's no guarantee. So that's what I say with the guy with the mental stuff I work with. They go, all this stuff helped me. I said, well, it's going to give you a good chance of helping you. Like It's better than you don't, but it's not a guarantee. There is going to be so many other factors in your performance. All I'm trying to do is have that gap between what you're capable of and then what you're delivering in key moments to be really, really small. And that's often the goal. How do you do that, Aaron? What would be if you took someone with a gap and they said to you, I want to improve my performance under pressure? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things you take them through to help them get better? I think it's a mix of education and tools. So the education part's really important, I think. So if we understand that the way that we're biologically designed is we walk away from pressure, not towards it, because that's how we've lived for the last thousands of years. Plus is that when we sense threat or we sense danger, we have these things go off within our minds and our bodies, which alert us to that. Okay, Our goal then is to find some comfort, <laughs> to alleviate the pressure and to get back to feeling non-threatened. So if you think about high-performance sport, which is the world I walk, work in, is that you have to learn how to walk towards pressure. So that's a whole other skill set, right? You have to understand that there is no avoiding pressure if you want to perform well. So you've just got to learn how to walk towards that. Well, I can come back to that. Number two, you've got to accept, this is the crazy part, right? You've got to accept that adversity is a necessary part of growth where most people live life with avoiding adversity or Adversity comes and they can't overcome it or they cope with adversity, whereas to operate at that top level, you've got to understand adversity is often a stepping stone into the next level of your of your capability because you're going to learn from adversity and it's going to force you to do things different. Then the final thing is failure. So 
failures has to happen if you're operating at the edge of your capability. And so you think of those three things alone, you have to have reshape the whole relationship with pressure, adversity, and failure to be successful at the highest level. And so, so often people have a, when I say and go back to answering your question, when they come and talk to me, they'll say, well, pressure. And I'll ask them a question like, how often are you uncomfortable in a week? Oh, no, I avoid discomfort. Why? It doesn't feel good. Okay, that's very normal. Do you understand that discomfort is critical to you? You have to learn how to navigate through discomfort to perform. So how do we help you reshape your relationship to pressure? So all of a sudden, pressure is not something to be avoided, but something to be embraced as you understand where it fits. And then that's the tool. So everybody has a little bit of a different reason why they feel pressure. I probably have honestly just put it down to three main categories, which is expectation. Am I good enough? Judgment. What will people think if I get it wrong? Consequences. What happens to me if I get it wrong? So pretty basic stuff. In those answers, you can see it's not a simple equation of just unwrapping a standard, here's a one, two, three, because everybody's got a different relationship to pressure. So how are you helping your children reshape their relationship to pressure? First is identifying why they feel it. I reckon that's a big one. Like, why do you feel pressure? And it's often, I sort of call pressure a social disease, is that no people, no pressure often. So pressure is something we often feel and experience in the presence of others because it's where failure is possible and with failure goes judgment and consequences so what will people think of me or what will happen to me and so what we're not just dealing with simply is i don't know if i like pressure the bigger question is how do i get free from the prison of everybody else's opinion of me that's the big question and how do i have freedom to be authentic to myself and to bypass the judgment factor which holds me back and keeps me pretty safe and secure and boring and predictable and non-creative, risk adverse if you want to use that term. So our biggest goal is to create safe failure, I suppose, where learn the lessons of failure, but be safe in our acceptance and love. I suppose that would be our goal. So we don't mind if you fail. You'll always have love and acceptance from us like because we're not judging you as a person here. If they can have those things secure. So, for example, by talking to my kids, they're like, when you go, like my son loves cricket, he's a cricket nut. So when he goes to play cricket, it's like crickets. How you go today is not going to define how mum, myself, or anyone who cares about you feels about you. Like we don't, we love you because of your character, because of how you operate, because of your love for all of us. Like, but cricket's a canvas that you have today just to express your freedom through. So go out there and enjoy it. That's probably how we try to work with our kids in that regard. Sounds to me like you're calling out the inputs not the result, not the outputs. Yeah, with kids, I think it's a little bit different to maybe working with athletes, right? So we can't be naive at the top end to say that outcome doesn't matter. It does matter. It's how they're judged. So contracts derived by outcome, determined by outcome. It's interesting. So let me go back to that. It's a great subject. So I see there's two sort of categories. So you've got outcome obsession, which I would say sits out here. So everything's about getting a win, everything's about outcome, how I feel, my self-esteem, all of that's about that. So that's really dangerous place to live. But modern athletes, I see a little bit of a danger too at times, and I put it over here, and I'll call it process apathy. They're actually too scared to be judged. So everything's about my process. I'm always in a process. Well, when are you evaluating the effectiveness of your process? So to me, the evaluation of effective processes is performances. 
So if you're not performing better, your processes are rubbish. And we have to just say change your processes because it's not getting to you to where you need to get to. So I think it's always a mixture. I don't think we can be naive enough to go, okay. So interesting, right? All of the studies when you talk to kids about sport, the whole political correct sort of emphasis towards it now is to it's fun and it's enjoyment. That's warranted and there's a lot there. But there's also a lot when you ask kids about why do you want to play sport? I want to play to win. You know, it's just that it's built into them. Like, I want to win. You can't dismiss that desire to win and to have success and compete and be better. That's awesome. Like, it can get messy if it's not administrated, I suppose, efficiently. But I think there's a real danger in taking competitive edge out of our kids and just resorting back to what I would call process apathy, where you're never measuring improvement, you're never measuring if you're getting any better. And you know, and I know that they one day step into the next part of their life in the big bad world and outcome determines belonging. Like if you perform, you got a job. If you don't perform, you don't have a job. And how do you maneuver through that pressure is going to be pretty critical. I think putting my corporate hat on for a minute, there is a degree of judging someone's potential. In fact, I know that we do that. But there comes a point where potential must be translated into a performance that can be viewed as sustainable. And how do you go about working with teams to find that sweet spot between potential and performance? As you always evaluate it. So I do probably my split is 70% sports, 20% corporate, 10% skills. So that'll probably be my split across the year. So with the corporate clients, it's always a little bit more interesting to me in sports because sports is every week. Like it's just every week, either you're good enough or you're not good enough that week and then you go back and have a chat and you have an evaluate whereas there is a little bit of a luxury in the corporate space to have a little bit more long term not not a huge amount but at least you're able to go maybe a quarter which is a bit better than every week being on the hammer though I know that's also role specific but I think what we're identifying is I always ask the question from my end if I've got a high potential athlete okay well in your case high potential young worker and then not translating that into the performance, there's going to be two reasons why, right? I either haven't given them the tools or the education for that to occur, or they haven't taken responsibility. So it's going to be one or two things. So they've either said, nah, I've got the tools, I've got the education, and it's sad, mate, like even working in pretty high-level rugby and cricket, there's still guys I watch every year who don't take responsibilities for their careers. And they end up not taking all the education opportunities and tools they've been given and doing something with it. I reckon that would correspond really nicely into your space because I don't imagine it's much different. Like at the end of the day, you'll see the person who's got that growth mindset, who's got a bit of hunger, a bit of drive, who's willing to ask questions, who's willing to go deep, who's willing to learn, who's willing to make mistakes, be quite humble. They're going to be fine for the rest of their career because they've got the right stuff internally. But then if you're not providing them the tools or the education, then their growth will be stunted. So I think it's a bit of a both. And I don't know if you experience the same thing, that's sort of how I've... I think so. We're lucky enough to do... We have a psychologist on staff and we do a lot of psych testing. And it's great because it gives you great insight and you manage a great insight. And I think my learning from watching this unfold over the last decade is resilience, which you can test for and drive, are actually pretty strong indicators of success, much more so, I think, than intelligence. You've got to be smart enough. But beyond that, particularly during this COVID time, 
your ability to, as you talked about, withstanding pressure. I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of showing up day after day. And I think it's the way it's coming to the understanding that it's not the mistake or the challenge that's the issue, but it's your reaction to that challenge or mistake which is going to define you. And I think, I don't know how that sits with you, but I'd say that's one of the key learnings that personally I've taken. You go back to Angela Duckworth, who wrote a very, very famous book called Grit. She identified two traits, passion and perseverance. Not much different to what you're saying, like drive and endurance or drive and resilience. It's the same sort of concept that people who understand deeply the value of their work and their own lives and then have a reason outside of, I suppose, quite hedonistic in nature. They have a reason for their work. That enables or encourages or empowers the endurance, perseverance place. So may as well do, like at the start of a season, I'll ask a lot of our guys, why do you play rugby? And if you can nail that with someone, then all of a sudden you're creating like this kindling, internal kindling that you just need to light a match to because they're already identifying, because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be really hard. You're going to have tons of adversity. So there'll be deselection, there'll be injuries, there'll be all of this stuff. So what's going to give you the fuel to persevere or be resilient in those moments will be connected to things that are much bigger than what's sitting in front of you every single day, right? Yeah. So this, I think what's happening in COVID is, the tyranny of the urgent, if you want to use that term, but more from a motivational pathway aspect, like, I was really motivated because there was always something in front of me, almost like I was anaesthetized to the to where I was really at with my career, my life, and all of that stuff. So when COVID's come, I think a whole lot of people have been that anaesthetic have worn off. And it, when you have go from busyness to quietness, right, or you go from chaos to peace, not that you know everyone's gone to peace, but that sense of slow down and and you have time to reflect and reason with yourself. I reckon that's been incredibly beneficial, but I reckon really terrifying to a lot of people because they're like, I don't really like my life. I don't really like my work. I don't really like whatever that might be. What am I going to do about that? That connection or that connection to go, I know exactly what I do. and I know exactly why I do it. And I know in my experience, COVID was, you had to be tremendously adaptable but that adaptability to me was fueled by an understanding of COVID wouldn't dictate the parameters of my why. It might dictate the parameters of my what, but it doesn't touch the parameters of my why. So I can keep doing that. The expression of that may just look a little bit different. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Aaron, could I switch the conversation 
to leadership for a minute because when I was preparing for today and, and reading about your background, I came across the 2018 work that you did with the New Zealand women's football team. And what I found really intriguing about it was the, the work was focused on helping them move on from a bad experience under a coach. Mm. And through your work with them, you sort of arrived at this idea of we'll find a way because anything yeah. is possible, which for those of us who don't know yeah. the New Zealand culture, it's very much embedded in the psyche. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'd really like to ask you is based on this experience, what tips mm. do you have for other teams who are trying to move forward after a period under a very divisive leader? I see teams, I suppose it's probably the little bit of the cultural aspect of being a New Zealander and having some of our connection to Māoridom is that we have a concept with a New Zealand called Whakapapa. And it's a concept that basically you could put it this way, where we are one, our arms are linked all the way back in history and all the way forward in history. And we're continuing a story or continuing a narrative or an identity. And at the moment, the sun's on us. And so we have a responsibility then to honour those that have gone before us and then also to prepare for those that are coming after us. And so when we talk about something like Papa, as it related to the Football Ferns, which is the team that I was working with, they'd had a quite a tremendously strong historical narrative of togetherness and some beautiful qualities that exemplified who New Zealand women were. And for a period of time, that was taken away, I suppose, or, or stolen. So for me, it was never about trying to create a new identity. It was trying to recapture that which was most authentic that had operated for a while, but some sort of impostorship had occurred within the environment. And therefore, we had lost the essence of that. And it was now going back through our history and, well, who are we? And so when we came to that point of moving forward, I suppose, it wasn't so much, though we did have some, I suppose, a little bit of processing of what had occurred during the previous 18 months. It was very much going, well, we know who we are. We actually, this is what I find with teams that is quite infuriating when you go in there is that I think Harvard did this study where if you go to values, there's only about nine that come up in every single team session. So values, I don't really believe in putting values on a wall. and I just think it's a waste of time. What I care about is stories and identities and who are you? Who are you? Who's been the people in your history that have shaped who you are today? And yeah, I suppose that's that Fokker Papa aspect of it. And so we went through some tremendous stories. Like, so we had this idea of like we wanted quite part of the New Zealand culture was just this sort of sort of that proverb of just looking after each other and we take care of our own and we don't put our needs before anyone else. And there's a beautiful story about a woman's goalkeeper and she was the number one goalkeeper in New Zealand before one of the Olympics. And just two days, I think it was, before they went on an Olympic qualifier. Her father took his own life and she never went to the qualifiers. Still got selected for the World Cup and for the Olympics and never played a minute. She went from number one to number two. Her name was Rebecca. And when we when you talked to her and you talked about the story, she made this statement and she said, on any given day, somebody's got to make a sacrifice. My job was to prepare that team as best as I possibly could for those events. So I could say to them, hey, we have a value of selflessness, or we could say, whose turn is it to be Rebecca today? Does that make sense? So now it's alive, it's it's organic, it's it's meaningful. And I reckon if I sit with most companies or teams and I say, well, tell me your Papa, 
Tell me your identity. Tell me who you are because your identity to me is the foundation of your environment. Your identity dictates what your values are. Your identity dictates what your behaviours are. Your identity dictates what your purpose is. It all flows out of this thing. Who are we and what are we here to do, right? That's the – so when we went to the New Zealand football team, we always had these little traits. So we look after our own. We find the way. And then we sort of had this little one sitting on any given day. So we had this – in our whakapapa, we had all these stories of these New Zealand teams that should have never competed. Like, we just were talent-wise. So I'll just give you one quick story how this worked out. We, we had quite a difficult time. We managed to qualify for the World Cup, this team. This is in November 19 and in June 20. So November 18 and in June 19, we found ourselves in the south of England in Brighton. We're playing England, England's last match before they went to the Football World Cup, ranked number three in the world. And they, I think they had, we had 5,000 women players in our country. They had something like 5 million. Their budget for the World Cup was, it's just, I could go on, mate. It was, we beat them 1-0. They had 73% of the ball. And we stuck together. We found a way. And we believed, well, on any given day, we could just do, does that make, so now these identity pieces invaded the environment that now becomes part of our performance identity. And that's where I think environment, identity, culture affects performance and where it can be quite powerful. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but sort of some practical examples. Very much does answer. And I want to ask you a follow-up on about the broader identity of New Zealand sporting teams, but I'd like to firstly drill into identity. You've actually said that identity is the golden thread of mental skills. Mm. Could you just, expand a little bit more about how identity links with mental skills and team performance? I think from an aspect of, if we go back to what are our our major pressure points, right? So if we think about this judgment thing of what will people think of me, that's a big one. And consequences, I tend to put much more in the physical thing. Will I be selected? Will I have a job? So they all evoke pressure. Can I pay for my mortgage? Will I have a contract? So they all evoke pressure, which steals our ability to be free and perform, right, if we don't deal with a problem. So what identity for me becomes critical is that if you don't get identity right, you're asking the sport to deliver something to you that it cannot deliver, which is your sense of self-worth. And so to me, I look at a young athlete and go, well, your identity is not as an athlete. We know that that's what you do. Okay, so... I'll often go to them, go and find, I want you to find three anchors from your family history that if you displayed, you'd be really proud of. And they'll go away and talk to mum and dad, do some study and really quite profound, talk to grandmas and grandfathers and come back and go, well, so I'll use ours as an example, like our three real anchors that we just have to, you know, every single day are part of our, our family. Number one, by fun, we've got to have a lot of fun. All right, so we've always been a family that's had fun. I come from a big Irish family. It's always a lot of fun. If we're not having fun, we're not being true to ourselves, right? So that would be number one. The second thing is consistency. So same thing like granddad, dad, got up, went to work every day. And it's more about you know what you're going to get with us. We're going to be reliable. We're going to be consistent. I think the third thing is very much around that sense of looking after other people. So that's been a big one, the empathy. So for example, then each day I get up and go, is my identity going to be defined by what role I have this week, what role I have next week, what team I'm working with, what athlete I'm working with? Is that where my self-worth is going to originate from? Or is there going to be another source? And for me, it's my 
myself was derived by my ability to be authentic to those identity anchors that I've determined to be important rather than compromise though in order to be someone else to get another role. So when you go on, how do you apply that to a sports field? So if you, can you imagine going to play 18 minutes of rugby, I'll give you that as an example, and how you feel about your, as a person, your measure of self-worth for that week, right? And put something else in there, which even makes it more difficult. Your sense of value from your peers is going to be determined by your performance. All of a sudden, your anxiety goes from here to here, right? Rather than my sport isn't where I get those big questions answered, but it's the canvas in which I get to express my identity anchors through. Therefore, when I go to play, what are the three things that are true about me that I want to be authentic to and what do they look like for me as a rugby player? Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I yeah. wasn't aware of this concept of Fokker Popper and I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. it correctly. Yeah, 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 you got it, yeah. For anyone who knows anything about New Zealand sport, I think yeah. it's fair to say they are the most proud sporting nation on the planet and I say that as an Australian that's living in Europe. So I probably, you know, you, you could argue with that forever more but there is something about New Zealand sporting teams that does set them apart and I wondered whether it is this mm. connection that you talk about. Mm. But there's also, when I listen to you talk about respect and value and the pressure mm. that comes mm. with having to serve this higher national value, this national identity, you must find that you are dealing with a lot of negative self-talk or a mm. lot of negative self-identity because of the pressure mm. that athletes are putting themselves under. If, if we're just drilling to self-talk, yeah, yeah. how do you yeah. stop someone from beating themselves up if they're not honouring this mm. rich history that dates all the way back? With the All Blacks is probably the one that most people associate with New Zealand sporting success. And we are talking about a legacy now of over 100 years of fairly good success. And so I think you understand it when you walk in there. I've never been an All Black myself, but I think players understand when they walk into their, their environment, there is a natural edge that's created and a natural expectation. But I think that the counterbalance of that, I suppose, with that particular example is you've dreamed your whole life to do it. So it's not like... There's a dread. There's an unbelievable excitement as well. Now, as we talk about sports as a wider whole, and we separate it just from the New Zealand thing. So I do think you're right. I think we have a spiritual component to our sporting success, which is connection with a purpose higher than ourselves, which is you understand that as a little country in the bottom of the world. So you think about the purpose of the All Blacks is to unify and inspire all New Zealanders. So they know that's their purpose. So they know that we know that so much inspiration and unity can happen through them performing well. So we know that. So if you talk about purpose, that's your purpose. In order for that purpose to be achieved, they've got to play some good footy. So everyone accepts the responsibility associated with that. But I suppose the art of it is, I suppose from a pressure management scenario, is to accept that, feel that, be excited by that, embrace that, but then reduce all of that noise into the background and do what you're there to do. And I think that's where we've had good coaching that's able to go. We want you to have this sitting there, but not as a burden. It's just part of the history that we want you to have tremendous pride and hopefully inspiration. But in the middle of the of a game on a field, you don't want players thinking about maintaining the 
dignity or mana, we would use that term of the jersey. You want to have them thinking about doing their job, right? So there is a passion element, but probably during the middle of performance, you know, the analogy I use, do you want your doctor who's doing life-saving heart surgery on you to be thinking about your family and the consequences of you living or dying, or do you want him just to be locked into doing the best job he could possibly can on your heart in that moment in order for you to survive? He understands those consequences, but then just reducing it back to nice, clear actions in that moment that make a difference. It does sound, listening to you, it it sounds pressurised. And I wonder if it isn't that New Zealand kids are being prepared at a very young age to shoulder this societal expectation, which is probably a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Small nation, bottom of the world, cold, hot rough waters, that there's an element of needing to survive, I think, which has probably been passed down through the generations. You often hear more about sporting teams from New Zealand than you do about star. I think a real good paradigm shift for most people is pressure is not something to be avoided. It's something to be utilised to get the best out of yourself. Whenever you see pressure in a negative light, right, avoid, 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 then how can you associate that with high performance? Where I see pressure as something that's just a necessary thing you have to utilize in that moment as a privilege to understand where you're at and what's in front of you right now. And you do hear the concept pressure is a privilege. So why is it a privilege? Because you're exposing yourself to high pressure moments where real outcome. So there's a faith in your ability to be there in a moment. That's a privilege to be on a field in a rugby world cup final with 10 minutes to go. Like most people give their whole life for that opportunity, right? Yeah, there are negatives, and but I think it's how you view it. I think it's really how you view it. And I think that's what separates the best. So the best understand, they view pressure through the right lens and they have the right towards it and utilise it to increase their performance. Where those that don't go to the next level, they avoid pressure and when it arrives on them, they're overwhelmed by it and it decreases their level of performance. Aaron, I'm going to ask you a final question. I'm not sure you'll answer it because of the opening proverb about the sweet potato, but I'm going to try anyway. We've covered a lot of ground today, resilience, pressure, performance, consistency, fun, respect. If I was to talk to the athletes you've worked with, what would you think they would describe the legacy that you've left with them? How would they describe that? Ha, they probably think I got lucky. <laughs> well, as an I'm element a, of that, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a trained psychologist, so I feel pretty fortunate, mate. Like, I've never done any formal training. Like, I probably have a heap of imposter syndrome, like most of the time, to be perfectly honest, but probably got lucky enough to... How do you deal with that? I mean, Darren, you're not the first coach that I've spoken to who has said that they feel this imposter syndrome. And you have to understand that for people listening to the depth of your experience, it does sound strange. (laughs) Yeah, I think probably for me because... I recommend everyone who's younger than, like, I'm 44, so I recommend those, like, who are 25 who want to go into the field, go get a master's degree because I think the landscape has changed with those qualifications. It's going to be necessary for those. Like, I'm pretty probably got lucky I'm a bit older now. I can sort of still operate, and that may change, still be able to operate a little bit through having some experience. But I think the imposter thing, I don't know, sometimes I think it's really helpful. It keeps you grounded in the fact that don't get comfortable always keep learning, still be, I suppose, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but I suppose confidence like that you're there for a reason and you've got the tools to help people. I reckon it sort of drives you a little bit. It's like I've done quite a few webinars and things the last 
six months during lockdown and, and try to be generous as I can with information and IP and then I know some people thought oh you're giving a lot away and my thought as well you'd only test the validity of your ideas by exposing them to others so that's a great learning experience right so how do you know if your ideas are good well you got to put them out there sometimes and sometimes they're crap and you find that out so it's good to know it's free research eh, from people so yeah appreciate well, free research once you yeah. put it out there it forces you to go away and learn something else to put out there exactly that's the second thing it keeps you nice and hungry so i feel pretty fortunate from the aspect of as someone that there's so many well more qualified people in the mental skills space who are doing some incredible work so yeah i got pretty fortunate i think I think we make our own luck. But I understand, I was watching on LinkedIn recently and you said that you are dyslexic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with a managing director for a long time and it was only at the end when he was retiring that he came clean with the fact that he was dyslexic. But he said that he compensated by reading people very well and I wonder whether there isn't an element of that, that you're just very good at reading people and that you're probably quite a good poker player as a result. I'm not very good at writing. So the writing is that's where, like, I can articulate things, but I have to get my wife to check everything I write, basically. And then even like I'll write stuff and I've gone through it eight times and I just think, oh, I've got it. And then I'll send it away and someone will come back, oh, there's four typos in there. I didn't even see it. Like not even like close to seeing it. So even if you pointed it out, like obvious stuff to everyone else, I'm like, nah, I just can't see it. So I'll probably talk more than I write. I do love writing, but I'm just not very good at putting things together. So I suppose yeah, you learn how to communicate. You're forced to communicate in different ways. Aaron, I'm not going to let you off the hook on the legacy question. What would the athletes you've worked with say? I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask them, I reckon. Like, it's hard to say. What probably, would you like them to say? Oh, uh, probably consistent, yeah. We knew what we were going to get and the moods and the behaviours. And we understand this was a really difficult world and there's so many roller coasters and People come and go and coaches come and go and athletes come and go and you'd hope you offered some consistency and some support would be nice. I think that was just a little bit more than I expected to get. Aaron, it's been lovely to chatting to you. You're a very selfless person. You have wonderful ideas and when and if you put them together into a book, I will be very, very keen to read them and share them broadly. (laughs) As long as I don't write it. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time today. Yeah. It's been an absolute treat chatting to you. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome, mate. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to our interview on mental skills with Aaron Walsh. I hope you got a lot out of Aaron's deep experience and found a couple of ideas that you can bring back to your own teams, families, or colleagues for discussion. Some of the key parts of the interview that I found fascinating were his thoughts that A key part of developing someone's mental skills is reshaping or reframing their relationship to pressure. How he describes his job as a mental skills coach as shrinking the gap between someone's capability and what they deliver under pressure. How a culture is the environment that people experience every day within the group they belong to and how great coaches and leaders create social belonging with the team. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And please, if you have any feedback, ideas for episodes, or coaches you think we should interview, then please let us know. We love the interaction with the people around the world. It keeps us going. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.